The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Uh, we, if you have not been with us recently, we've been going through the book of John, the gospel story of John. And John is a book about Jesus, and boy, does it start out with a bang. Uh, we hear that Jesus is God himself in the flesh. We hear that he is the Messiah. We hear that he is the king of God's people that they've been waiting on. We hear that he is the savior of the world. We hear that he brings grace and glory beyond even the grace and glory that Abraham and Moses and the saints in the Old Testament saw. And remember, they saw some pretty incredible grace and glory. And we hear that this Jesus is going to draw all people to himself so that they might believe in him and have life in his name. We hear a lot of incredible stuff in this first chapter about Jesus. But it's only in the second chapter that Jesus actually starts driving the action himself. In chapter 1, we're talking about Jesus. From chapter 2 forward, Jesus is the one driving the ship. He's at center stage of the story as it unfolds. And so we are wondering, when we get down with chapter 1, and we're entering into chapter 2, what is God made man, the one who brings heaven and earth together, the word made flesh, the king of the universe, the savior of the world, what's he going to do first? And chapter 2 tells us, and John makes clear that what Jesus does first shows us Jesus's greater grace and glory, but it doesn't exactly unfold like we think it might. So let's hear John chapter 2. I'm going to invite Sharday to read the word for us. This one's on. on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became, become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Gal Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and he is disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What do we expect? God made human, the king of the universe, the one who brings great grace and unimaginable glory, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. What will he do first? What would you do first? Ride in on a white horse? Defeat the enemies? 
go up on a mountain and teach deep spiritual truths about how to look past the visible realities of the world and fix your heart on God? Would you do one of those many great works that we heard about in chapter 1? And that we'll hear about in John, great works like Jesus feeding thousands of people or Jesus healing incurable illnesses. One of those great works like Jesus raising someone from the dead. Is that where you'd begin? Is that where we expect God to begin? Jesus will get to all of those things in John's story, but that's not where God starts in this good news. Now, the first thing that Jesus does to reveal his glory, his electrifying beauty and power, is to go to a party. A wedding, in fact. So let's walk our way through this story and see what it shows us about this strange glory of this good king. And the first thing we see in the story is really simple. Jesus shows up at the party. Think about that. God, made human, shows up at the wedding. Jesus does not become human and live simply as some super spiritual guru dispensing spiritual truths that lead us to realities beyond the mess of our daily lives. No, Jesus, the Word made flesh, God in human form, takes time out to receive an invitation and go to a party. Think about that. The Creator, the one who created the soil with all of its complexity and its ecosystem that allows vines to be planted in the ground, the one who created the sun and came up with photosynthesis that allows the green leaves of that grapevine to take the sun's light and turn it into food. The one who came up with the crazy chemistry that allows the grapes created by that vine to be fermented and turned into wine to gladden the hearts of human beings, that one comes into which his own. And he goes with his buddies to a party and he kicks back a glass of the good stuff with his friends to celebrate a wedding. Is that what you expect God in human form to be doing? Why not? That's what he does in John. That's the first way God shows us his glory. Why does God engage in this apparently unimportant act? Because the world is God's. The world is good. And as John tells us in that famous passage, God so loves it. And so when Jesus shows up, he shows up at a wedding. Robert Fair Capon puts it like this. We are made in the image of God. And that means that we are made in the image of the ultimate materialist. The whole world bears witness to our king's present delight, his intimate and immediate joy in all that you have seen and in the thousand other wonders you do not even suspect. Jesus not only created the world and with it our lives and our feasts and our parties and our marriages and our workplaces and our friendships, he shows up to those things because the world is good and God loves it. Jesus shows up at the party, but not only, secondly, does Jesus show up at the party, he sticks around when the wine runs out. Jesus sticks around when the wine runs out. I love parties. I find a lot of life in parties. I love feasts. Man, I love feasts. Trying to, trying to stick to that 2022 diet, and it is hard because I love feasts, and I get a lot of joy there. 
I love being married to Rebecca, my wife. I love being the father to Amos, Isaiah, Nova, and Jubilee. I find a ton of joy in these good creational spaces, marriage, family, work. I love work. I find a lot of joy there these good creational places that the creator God has given us. But you know, and I know, every one of us knows that moment deep in our bones when the place where we are experiencing the joy of life suddenly becomes the place where we are experiencing crippling fear, unimaginable shame, terrible failure. Every one of us knows the experience when we are celebrating the party of our lives and we discover that the wine has run out and it's our fault and there's not one dadgum thing we can do about it. That's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is told by his mother Mary in 2-3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, even in our day, having a party, particularly a wedding, where you run out of food before the guests are done, eating and drinking is a big deal. But in the ancient world, this would be even a bigger deal. There are enormous cultural expectations on this family to throw a party at which there will be leftover food and drink even after the guests have been drinking for a full calendar week. Some of you all have prepared weddings recently. In the ancient world, wedding could last a whole week, and you got to feed and drink those jokers that entire time. And if you fail to, if you fail to, you will be the talk of the town for years to come. They'll say, they're those people too poor or too stingy. Why did they bother inviting of us if they couldn't deliver the goods? This family is facing humiliation and fear and shame right on the day and the place where a moment before they were experiencing the joy of the wine of the wedding. You and I know what that feels like, don't we? Don't we? Don't we know that moment where the place of joy becomes a place of shame? And humiliation, let me give you one example of mine. This is from fifth grade. When I was in fifth grade, I was at a, a lake party, lake day party with my class, place of joy. And this lake, this tower, you could jump off of it. It was so cool, so much joy. I jumped off that tower, I hit the water wrong, and my bathing suit exploded. It didn't come off like you could swim and get it. It exploded. There was nothing left of the bathing suit. And I was a fifth grader at a pool party. And the place of joy and life turned into a place of humiliation and shame really quickly. I'm not even going to tell you how it ended. You know that experience. You know that experience when the place where you were experiencing God's good gifts all of a sudden becomes a place of crippling fear, shame, and failure. Your wine has run out. There's nothing that you can do about it, and you know it. And the good news is when the wine runs out at our parties, Jesus sticks around. Before this family's shame and humiliation can even be known, third, Jesus rescues the party. He not only shows up to the party, he not only sticks around when the wine runs out, he rescues the party. How does he do that? A couple different ways. First, he acts with incredible mercy. Incredible mercy. I just want to remind you, in this gospel, in this story, Jesus will do the following. Heal lots of people who have incurable illnesses. He will feed 5,000 people. He will raise stinking Lazarus from the dead. But the first sign is not Jesus intervening to save a life with a big public display. It's quietly behind the scenes acting to protect a groom from humiliation. Jesus cares about you that much. 
Jesus cares about this family that much. He is filled with such overflowing, abundant mercy that he would use his unimaginable power not just to raise the dead, but to rescue you from humiliation. Jesus acts with incredible mercy in this moment. And we get a glimpse of just how merciful it is in this weird passing reference in John 2.6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These are the 20 or 30 gallon um, containers that Jesus tells them to fill up and that then becomes wine in the story. Why does John bother telling us that these were containers for purification. It's because he's making clear that Jesus has taken stuff that's supposed to be for one thing, ritual purity, and he's co-opting it and using it for another, wine to bring life and joy in the place of shame. Now, you and I sometimes have been taught we don't think too much of purity, right? So we might think Jesus is saying purification, bad, me, good. But that's not true. The Old Testament cares about purity. Jesus cares about purity. Symbols, uh, symbolic actions of washing are good things. We use symbolic washings when we baptize people. Jesus doesn't say this purification stuff is bogus, get rid of it. No, he just does something even more important than allowing the people to be pure. He saves the day with mercy. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about purity, it's that he cares even more about mercy. Mercy that cares about all of you, not just your life, but even those places of shame and humiliation that you don't even want people to find out about. That's Jesus' abundant, incredible mercy. So he saves the party with this mercy, but also he saves the party by bringing this overwhelming, abundant, ever-flowing, inconceivably large amount of joy in the form of 150 to 180 gallons of wine at a party where they've already been celebrating so much that the wine has run out. Jesus brings a ludicrous amount of wine. Why? Because in the Old Testament and the New Testament and around the world, wine is a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of, of celebration. It's a symbol of the feast. It's how you know you're at a party. Jesus is saving the party. He brings infinitely more party than could possibly be needed. Have you ever been an anxious host? I have. I know when you were in high school, if you tried to host people or in college, you know, you had that friend that you knew if the party got lame, they were out of there, right? You guys know that guy? That guy who's just like on the hunt for the good party? And if things slow down, they're bouncing, they're looking for the next one. I felt this fear a lot in high school, but you also know that you have that one friend that's going to show up and they are going to turn that thing up. It is going to get loud. The party will be brought because dude has come to the party, right? That's the role Jesus is playing here. Jesus is bringing an unimaginably, unending, un ridiculous quantity of joy to this, this party. 180 gallons of wine. This is a gallon. I just want you to like think about this for a moment. This is how long it takes to pour out one gallon of water. Still coming, still flowing, still happening. This is one. This is a milk jug, kids. One. Now do it 179 more times, and you've got how much joy Jesus brings to this party. Unimaginable, ludicrous, ludicrous generosity. Undrinkable amounts of joy Jesus brings to save this party. But not just an overwhelming quantity an overwhelming quality of joy. You remember the story. 
Jesus turns the water and the wine. The uh, master of the feast, which I imagine is some like bougie sommelier type, you know, real uptight, probably the first person to be nasty if they run out of wine, and also a bit of an expert. You know, he's like one of you coffee nerds who's always telling me about how the, I don't care, right? But that's how I imagine this guy, a real wine nerd, wine snob. He gets the wine from the, calls the groom who was just about to be humiliated for the next three or four years. And what does he say in John 2, 9 through 10? When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. You, the master of the feast said, have saved the best for last. Not only an incredibly large quantity of joy that Jesus brings to save this party, but an unimaginable quality of joy. Jesus brings wine that's saving the best for last. This is the way that Jesus reveals his glory. In the Old Testament, glory is like fireworks, right? It's like pillars of flame. It's like Isaiah in the temple seeing angels and smoke and earthquakes and lightning. Here is God's glory in Jesus. Here is his electrifying power and beauty and presence. Behind the scenes, he brings the best wine imaginable in unimaginable qualities and quantities as an act of mercy to a friend to spare them from humiliation. That's the first way in this gospel, the word made flesh, the word made flesh, shows the people his glory. At the very moment when this bridegroom thinks that they've failed, when they've run out of resources and there's nothing they can do about it, God shows up. Unimaginable mercy, unquenchable joy, unimaginable quality. But fourth, this Jesus brings joy that draws us in to him. Jesus shows up at the party. He sticks around when the wine runs out. He rescues the party with his mercy and abundant joy. But he also, and most importantly, uses that joy to draw people to him. I've been using the language of Jesus recognizing, uh, uh, or excuse me, rescuing this bridegroom from shame, which is an important concept. We are hyper aware of shame in our culture, but I don't want us to get confused uh, so often, get, dealing with my shame is so self-oriented, right? It's about me feeling better about myself so that I can get on with my life. We could misunderstand what I'm saying here and see Jesus as simply a therapist who wants to make sure that I'm a little bit better but not really concerned about where I go from there, okay? I say that as someone who's a major beneficiary of therapy, so I mean no disrespect. But Jesus is doing more than just bringing joy to, min to minister to this person's place of shame. He's bringing joy designed to lead every person who partakes of it back to him. That's what the glory is about. Jesus reveals his glory in this wine miracle so that he may draw people to believe in him. The goal of the sign, the goal of the joy is to draw people to Jesus. The joy that Jesus brings in this wine miracle is like breadcrumbs given to these people to draw them back bit by bit to the source, not just the wine, but the one who gives the wine, the one who created the wine, Jesus himself, 
Jesus didn't just provide wine that the wine master said was the best for last. Jesus is the unimaginable joy that God has saved the best for last. Jesus is the unquenchable joy poured out by the Father into your life and my life. And so Jesus not only shows up at the party, sticks around when the wine runs out, rescues the party, he then uses that joy work that he's doing in our lives to draw us to him. Because the disciples encounter the joyful presence of this wine at the feast, John tells us, they saw his glory and they believed. Now that's confusing because we think of belief as like believing facts about God. And the disciples didn't need that at this stage. We already know from John chapter 1, they told, they, it's the disciples who told us, Lamb of God who takes the sin of the, the world, Messiah, Son of God, Savior. Like they, got, they got all the facts about God. So what does it mean that here they believed in God? What does it mean to believe in, how is that different from the knowing the facts that they already knew in chapter one? What has changed or begun to change in their experience of the wine that only Jesus can bring? Well, I think we have to distinguish between uh, believing facts about something and trusting in something. For a few years, I got to live on a mountain, and sometimes I would go and watch hang gliders. <laughs> you know these guys, right? They got the big glider, and they're like in a sleeping bag tied to the bottom of it with wheels, and they go off a cliff. They just roll right off a cliff. And I've watched them do it again and again. I've never seen one of them fall to their deaths. Every time that they, that big dumb thing catches the wind and then they shoot up in the air and they fly around these hang gliders. And you know, I believe that those hang gliders can hold you up, but I've never jumped off the ledge. It's completely different to believe in your mind that the hang glider will hold you than to be so trusting in the hang glider that you strap yourself into that sleeping bag and push yourself off the ledge. That's the difference between belief that's just facts about and the kind of trust that Jesus wants from us. He doesn't want to just, us to just know the fact Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus, is, No, he wants you to believe that to such an extent that you throw your life on him. And by the way, that's the reason why G John has started telling us this story in the first place. He tells us at the end of the book, in chapter 20, Jesus did many other signs, just like this one, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, John says, but these that I have written are so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Not just believing that Jesus is the Son of God, but ready to jump off the cliff on the hang glider, believing in, trusting in, finding life in the one who brings joy, who reveals his glory in the one precisely to draw us to himself, the only source of the limitless joy for which we were designed. That's the story we have before us. That's the story John tells. I want us to spend a few minutes reflecting, where are we in this story? The disciples see the glory, and they believe. John shows us the glory of this miracle so that we might believe, so that we might trust. And so the primary question this story puts before us is, have we put our trust in Jesus? 
Not do we know facts about him, but have we cast the entirety of our lives upon him? Do we trust him? And maybe most importantly, do we trust him in those places where our joy has turned to shame? Do we trust him in those places where we are like the groom or me at that lake party, where the place of joy has turned to crippling shame and failure? Maybe it's a relationship that you have with a spouse. Marriages almost always begin in joy, but they don't always stay that way, do they? And maybe that relationship that had such promise for joy has become a place where the wine has run out. And you know you don't have one dadgum resource to do anything about it. Maybe your parenting is hardly a hospital room in the world where the birth of a child doesn't bring joy. But now for whatever reason, the wine has run out. You don't know what to do. You're out of resources and you feel crippling fear and failure and shame. Maybe it's work or a service that you've entered in. Maybe you're a teacher who came here, as many of you did, to Memphis to be a part of God's work. Maybe you came here to be a part of a nonprofit, part of God's work. Maybe you are in your neighborhood and you're laboring. You're laboring with the kids in your neighborhood to try to get them to embrace a better way, a less violent way of life. Maybe you're in your workplace and you said, God cares about this workplace and I'm gonna give myself to it. And you found life there. Maybe you're in the medical, maybe in any way you've looked at the work of your hands and thought, yeah, this is God's calling and mission my life and you felt joy and all of a sudden the wine has run out and you wonder what in God's name am I doing here because I thought I was here in God's name but now the wine's run out and I got no resources to do anything about it maybe you're at this church And you came here because you wanted to be a part of a family, the family of God, and you wanted your faith in Jesus to be strengthened. Maybe you're just a believer trying to walk with the Lord, and you remember times that were joyful with God, but the wine has just run out. You're out of resources. You don't know what to do. John writes to people like you and like me to tell us this story to woo us back to Jesus. Let's be real. This is the kind of story that you tell about a friend when you want another friend to get to know that friend, right? Like, hey, let me tell you about my friend so-and-so. Like, they bring the party, right? Let me tell you about the time he bailed me out when I was in this situation. This is like, this is the, John is telling us a story to get us amped up about this guy, Jesus. John is telling us this story to woo our hearts when the wine has run out. Say, wherever you are, Jesus is with you. And not only is he with you, he's sticking around in your emptiness. And not only is he sticking around, he's rescuing you by bringing you mercy and joy and love, all of which are designed to lead you deeper and deeper and deeper into a life of trust and faith in him. The primary purpose of this story, in my opinion, is not to teach us anything about God. It's to woo us to Jesus. It's to say, surely, surely, it's to say, look, imagine, imagine, imagine that the world really is created by this all-powerful God who has all power in his hands, and he can demand whatever he wants, and he can do whatever he wants, and you're rebellious and a sinner, and he comes to you, and he throws a huge party and brings 180 gallons of the best wine you can imagine, and that's how he shows you his glory. Do you just, John is saying, like, look, look at this guy. Here is life. These things are told so that you may believe, and by believing that you may have life in his name. 
This story is told to you so that you may track the joy that Jesus is bringing in your life back to its source. John apparently had no magic fixes for you and me. But he does tell us this story. He does say this is how God shows us his glory. Follow the crumbs. Follow the wine back to the source. And brothers and sisters, I truly believe that this morning, Jesus is with us right now. And in each one of your lives, he's saying, come to the source. Be wooed back. I don't know what that means for you. Our Ted's gave us one great step last week, uh, talking about how we can just get in the word again and again and again. Next week, in, in, in our Sunday school, Allison Bradshaw is going to continue her series where she reminds us we can show up to Jesus in prayer again and again and again. Maybe it's showing up here. I don't know all, I don't know what it looks like for you to grow in love and trust with Jesus in each one of your situations. But I know that John has given us this story to say, look at this king. Look at the joy that he brings. The joy that's overflowing, that's qualitatively different that's given in unimaginable mercy, see his glory and come fall down at his feet. I know he's saying that to every single one of us. There's another message though here for some of us who are convinced. If you're feeling convinced this morning, if you know like God did to me recently where he showed me the joy that he's put in my life that I had been missing and he started to draw me back to himself and I saw his glory. If you're there this morning, there's another character that I wanna draw your attention to and that character is Mary. Because Mary did believe enough to trust. Mary believed enough to trust that all she had to do was bring her friend's shame to Jesus' attention. She didn't even have to ask him. She just knew if I bring it to his attention, he will act. Mary somehow already knew that Jesus was overflowing with mercy, uh, capable of bringing unimaginable joy. And all she did was come to the one that she loved and say, the wine has run out. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Jesus follower this morning, if you've drunk the wine, look around. Who in your life do we need to bring to Jesus and say, Jesus, for so-and-so, for brother and sister so-and-so, the wine has run out. Who do we need to intercede on their behalf, demonstrating that we trust Jesus enough to take care of those we love? even when they've run out of resources, even when they're facing failure, even when they're facing crippling shame, and we know that they've got nothing they can do about it, and we've got nothing we can do about it, we can be like Mary. Jesus, the wine has run out. And then remind ourselves, like those servants, to do whatever he tells us. Speaking of Mary, one part that you may have noticed I skipped is that really bizarre conversation between Jesus and Mary. Ever since this text was written down, commentators have been concerned to let Jesus off the hook for being disrespectful to his mama. What is there between you and me, woman? <laughs> My hour's not yet come. <laughs> Those are harsh words. But I want to direct your attention to that. My hour has not yet come. Because that phrase, that phrase reminds us that Jesus knows something that Mary doesn't. That his revealing his glory will cost him. You might have thought that the creator of heaven and earth could just 
snap his fingers and create wine out of water. And you would be right. But what Jesus knows that Mary doesn't know, and we as readers don't know yet, is that by revealing his glory, Jesus is knocking down the first of the dominoes that will lead through a series of events of Jesus becoming more and more known, and that Jesus knows, although Mary does not, will end in his glory being revealed in his death on a cross. That's where John says Jesus knew that he was going to be glorified when he was lifted up, the Lamb of God who takes away sin by dying for his sinful people. You might have thought, Mary might have thought, making wine out of the water would cost Jesus nothing. In fact, it cost him everything. It cost him his very life. And so the meal that Jesus makes back then by turning water into wine ultimately directs our attention to the meal that he offers us right here. Not water into wine, but bread and wine that represent his body broken for you. His blood poured out for you to bring you joy and purification and forgiveness of sins and life abundant and peace unimaginable. Jesus purchases the party at the cost of his own life. And we are welcomed to that party again today here at the Lord's table. So brothers and sisters, wherever you are, whatever your relationship with Jesus has been up to this point, may I invite you, may I plead with you to be wooed by Jesus, to come to him, not just believing that, but trusting in Trusting in the fact that the God who gave his life for you will never leave you nor forsake you, will always be with you, and will be bringing along the way a mercy and a joy unimaginable otherwise. There are characters in this story that miss out. That uppity wine feast guy drinks the wine, but never hear about him again. He misses the invitation. Don't miss the invitation. Allow the glory of God revealed in this text to draw you to himself. Let's pray. Jesus, unless, unless you came as God in the flesh, the water in those pots just stays water. Unless you show up this morning by the power of your spirit, we will miss your glory even as we receive your gifts. We will miss you, Jesus, if you do not show up. And yet you say in this very story, John's telling of the story, that when you are lifted up on the cross, that you would draw all people to yourself. We hold out that hope before you this morning, Jesus. We remind you of those words that you spoke to your disciples, that you would not lose one of all that the Father had given you. And we pray, pray this morning that you would fulfill those ancient promises by using this story and using this table to woo our hearts 
back to you, to romance our hearts back to you, to capture our minds and our bodies and our eyes and our hearts and our souls for you, Jesus. We know there are places in our lives where the wine has run out, where joy has been replaced by shame and fear and humiliation and failure. God, we need to know that you are right there in those places with us and that you are rescuing us in your great mercy and your lavish generosity and your abundant joy. God, that's the good news that we have heard this morning and we ask or we plead by the power of your spirit, Lord, need that good news into our hearts. Work it into our hearts. Draw us, draw all people in this city, Jesus. Draw all people in this world. Draw all people unto yourself. May your glory be revealed in the miracle of your word and in the wine at the Lord's Supper table and in our lives as we bear witness to you as the one who is lifted up and who draws all to yourself. Lord, we, we long, we long to fall into that kind of trust in you, to be dragged into it by your great power and love. We pray you do that work among us today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we have feasted with the king, but the feast does not have to end. I have brothers on each side, sisters on each side, ready to pray with any who want to continue and ask them to be Marys for them on their behalf with Jesus. And the blessing that we all receive in a moment, which is not my blessing, it's Jesus' blessing, is blessed, given to us, poured out into our lives so that we would go out there into the world and be a vehicle of God's blessing in other people's lives. The feast, the celebration, it does not end. It does not stop. Jesus is present at the party right now, and he'll be present with you tomorrow, whatever comes. The people of God are here. A family that God is creating is here. A family founded on joy that only Jesus could bring. Brothers and sisters, let us draw near to him in trust. Please stand and receive the benediction. You can stretch out your hands wide to remind your body that this is your blessing spoken over you from the Lord. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you unimaginable joy and unimaginable peace. Go in peace. Amen. <laughs>